Welcome to Gospel in Life. People around the world understand the word gospel to mean good news, but it's much more than a message of salvation. The gospel is also a comprehensive worldview that can shape how we understand ourselves, others, and the world around us. Today, Tim Keller is delving into the underlying implications of the gospel and how it truly changes everything. After you listen, we invite you to go online to gospelandlife.com and sign up for our email updates. When you sign up, you'll receive our quarterly newsletter with articles from Dr. Keller as well as other valuable gospel-centered resources. Subscribe today at gospelandlife.com. Our reading today is from Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31, and chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who would justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. This is God's word. The Bible is a story about what's wrong with the human race and the world and what God's done to put it right in Jesus Christ. And we've said uh, that here in Romans 3 and 4, we have maybe the most compact um, place that the Bible tells us exactly what God has done to put things right in Jesus Christ. And we actually, I think three weeks ago, said you can put it in a phrase, we're justified by faith through the blood of Christ. That's what Paul's saying. And three weeks ago, we looked at the word justified. And last week, we looked at, or two weeks ago, we looked at justified. One week ago, we looked at blood of Christ. And today, we want to look at the last of those terms, which is faith. What is this saving faith that connects us to God? And I want to do it in a way that, well, I want to do it the way Paul is doing it here. Uh, There's too much to say about faith for one sermon, but Paul, notice, twice contrasts faith with boasting. So verse 27, the opposite of boasting is faith. In chapter 4, verse 2, the opposite of boasting is faith. And I think that means that Paul is trying to throw in relief into relief what saving faith is by contrasting with this idea of boasting. Uh, and so let's, us, let's do it. Let's go with him and let's cast 
our text, our teaching today, under three headings. There's a spiritual sickness that the Bible calls boasting. There's an antidote to that spiritual sickness. And then lastly, let's look at what it means or how we actually take the antidote. There's a sickness, there's an antidote to the sickness, and then last of all, let's ask ourselves questions. How do we actually take the antidote? First, the sickness, which is boasting. Now, in Paul and in the Bible, uh, this idea of boasting actually comes up a lot more than you think. Uh, it, uh, Paul mentions it constantly in uh, his biggest and his most important, uh, longest letters. But it's also there all through the Bible. And the background of this idea of boasting, what, what, is, what is both actually good and bad about boasting, uh, we can understand if we look at the original, the origin of the idea of boasting, the origin of the concept. In ancient times, boasting was a ritual before you engaged in battle. Boasting was a ritual part of warfare in ancient times. And now think about this. How do you get a group of guys, soldiers, to charge with all their might and with all their passion into certain death? How do you get them excited about that? A ritual boast. Uh, one of the things that the king or the general would do is to, uh, is to do some sort of boasting before the, before the, uh, the, the soldiers. And he would do something like, uh, this is, uh, uh, by tonight... The king, their king's head will be upon my banner standard, you know. And everybody go, like that. And, you know, there's crude, for, you know, there's crude forms of it. There's Anglo-Saxon, Mandarin, you know, Greek versions of basically, we're going to wipe the floor with you. You know, that's a boast. We're going to do this, we're going to do that to them, and they're going to be this, and we're going to be that. Then there's the more eloquent versions. You can go to Henry V, you can go to Shakespeare, and you can listen to the St. Crispian's Day speech, and the St. Crispian's Day speech is incredibly eloquent, but essentially it's a ritual boast. Ray for us. We've got what it takes. We're going to do it. And the end of the speech is what? A cheer. Who are they cheering for? They're cheering for themselves. Because how do you get people to go into battle? How do you get people to go move out into con with confidence into horrible danger? <laughs> you boast. You say, we have this and we have that. Now, it is fascinating that the Bible takes something which was a, the way in which you got confidence to go into battle, uh, to take part of ancient military warfare, and say, this is actually characteristic of every single human heart. And, what, what, and, and it's, this is also what's wrong with every human heart. It's very interesting. So, for example, in Judges, the book of Judges, God's speaking to Gideon, and Gideon is leading an Israelite army against the Midianites. And Gideon is saying to uh, God, you know, please help us defeat the Midianites. And you know what God says? He says, the people that are with you are too many. For if I deliver the Midianites into your hands, Israel will boast against me, saying, mine own hand has saved me. Now, right there is the very essence of the problem. The whole idea behind ritual boasts is we can do it. We can get it. We're strong enough. We're good enough. And what God says is the problem with every human heart is you look at your beauty, you look at your smarts, you look at your talent, you look at anything good about yourself, you look at your achievements, and you say, I did that. You take credit for it. You see it as your accomplishment. Yet they're gifts from God. 
You know, you were born with the talent. You were born with the... They're gifts from God. But you take credit for it, and that is the very nature of the human heart. But probably the most famous spot in the Bible that talks about the spiritual sickness and the difficulty and the problems of boasting is in Jeremiah 9, 23, something that many people have heard so often they kind of know it by heart, where God says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast of his strength. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, for I exercise kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for in these things I delight, says the Lord. Now, what is Jeremiah saying? What is God saying? What God is saying is, every soul makes its boast in something. And by the way, the word boast here, this is a Hebrew text, is the word hallel, from which we get our word hallelujah, which means praise to Yahweh, to praise the Lord. But here this is telling us that every single uh, soul makes its boast in something. It looks at something. Uh, if you have money, it lo- you say, look at the money I've got. If you've got might, athletic prowess, beauty, you look at that. If you have smarts, you have that. Look at that and you say, this is why I'm valuable. This is why I am love-worthy. This is why I'm worthy of applause, of accolades, of cheering. This is why I am worthy of praise. This is my glory. This is who I am. This is my significance. This is, this is my value. This thing. I have accomplished this. This is mine. You see, the soul knows, our hearts know, that the world is a battlefield. How are you going to move out into it with confidence? Or when you're actually attacked, when you're criticized, when you're, when you're opposed, how do, you, how do you defend yourself? How do you deal with the battle? Here's how the human heart does You say, I'm a good father or a good mother. Look at my children. I'm a good artist. Look at my credentials. Or I'm a good person. I go to church. I obey the law of God. Look at my moral record. Or I am part of an incredibly important political cause, and I'm really doing good in this world. Or I'm part of a particular people group, and I care about my people, and I'm I'm moving my people forward in this world. And God says, don't do that. Don't do it. Every single soul looks to something and says, that's mine. I'm strong enough. And looks to cheer itself or to get cheers from other people. So it can be brave enough. That's how it's defending itself. That's how it's getting its confidence. Look at this. Look at that. Look at this in me. That makes me somebody who can do this. And God says, don't. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because boasting is a battle cry, and every boast is necessarily a taunt. Every boast was a taunt. Again, let's go back to the origin of this idea. When you said, we're going to do this and we're going to do that, we're going to wipe the floor with you, let's get out there. Of course, that was also a taunt. It was a way of despising the other army. Uh, this, by the way, oh, it seems to backfire every year. You know, for the two weeks before the Super Bowl, every soldier, I mean football player, is, I'm sorry, uh, and uh, is interviewed, and very often you'll always have one guy on the team who start to say, uh, you know, you know, our receivers are no match. Their, their receivers are no match for our secondary. We're going to wipe the floor with them. They're not, they're not even going to, this guy's not even going to catch one, one pass. Of, you know. And what's he doing? It's a ritual boast. You know. 
And what he always says is, I was just trying to fire up my teammates, but so often, and that's true, it's a boast. It's how you get people to get out there, fire up my teammates, same idea. But it's also a taunt. And it very often backfires because what happens is the coach of the other team <laughs> pins, the, pins the statement on the bulletin board of the, of the locker room and says, are you going to take that? <laughs> you see? And what happens is the boast becomes a taunt and it creates bad blood, it creates bitterness, it creates anger. And what that means is when you ground your identity, that is to say when you boast in something you have or something you do, that identity, as much as it seems to build you up, always, always divides the human race. It, it's a taunt. It leads, to, it leads to all kinds of destruction, breakdown, divisions, and conflict. So if, you, if your ultimate boast of your soul is what a hard-working person you are, your career, you have to disdain, you have to feel superior to people that you think of as lazy. You will. You have to. You disdain them. If you believe, if the ultimate boast of your soul is that you're a good person or that you go to church or that you study the Bible or that you obey the Bible and your doctrine is all just right, see, then you have to despise infidels. You have to disdain them, make it easy to mistreat them. You know, if you really, 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 if the ultimate boast of your soul is I'm part of this great people, this nationality, this ethnic group, this, this group of people, it's almost impossible not to villainize and demonize any other people group that doesn't respect yours. Or if you're part of one political cause and you say, this, if it, see, it's one thing to be, you can have a family, you can, have, you can be proud of your race, you can, you can be involved in a political uh, cause, but when it's the ultimate boast of the soul, and that's what happens, when it says, this is how I know I'm okay, this is how I feel good about myself, this is the way in which I deal with the battlefield of life, you know. I am in this political party and we're doing what the world really needs and you're going to have to demonize and villainize and marginalize the people who aren't voting, aren't voting for you. And the human heart so wants to do this. I, a minister, I was reading um, recently a sermon by an old minister, British minister, who remembers Years ago, he was at a at one of these uh, a service in which it was an evangelistic revival service, and one of the, he had several testimonies. People were going to give their testimony. So one man got up there and said, "Ah, oh, brothers and sisters, I was such a bad sinner, but the Lord wonderfully, wonderfully saved me." And everybody went, "Oh, that's wonderful!" It was a great testimony. Then another guy got up there, <laughs> and the, the next man says, "Well, the brother that just went before me, he thought he was a sinner." He thought he was, it was really something that God saved him. He doesn't know anything about sin. Let me tell you about sin, you know. Let me tell you what I've done and what I've been through. And, so, and the minister sat there and said, oh, my gosh, he's proud of grace. And, and what if you go to a church that's down on legalists, down on people who are just religious, moral people? They don't understand the gospel. They don't understand grace. Thank goodness you're not like one of them. Thank goodness... You're not self-righteous. Thank goodness you don't boast in your morality. But guess what? Now you're boasting that you don't boast. And now you're self-righteous against the self-righteous. See, and now you're proud that you're not a proud person. And, uh, you, know, and, you, and uh, you, you, you don't put your trust in doctrine like those awful, you know, doctrinally uh, uh, tight, rigid people over there. You, you, you know, you really, you major in the majors and you've got grace toward everybody. And next thing you know, 
See, what the minister is saying is the human heart will boast. It will take something that is an absolute gift, grace of God, and it will say, that's mine, and that's the reason why I am love-worthy. That's why I'm worthy of applause, accolades, cheering. You know, applaud me. Everybody does that. And it's dividing the human race, and it puffs you up in arrogance if you get the thing. If you achieve the thing that you're boasting in, it'll puff you up and divide the human race. And if you can't get it, if you fail it, you'll beat yourself up and loathe yourself and hate yourself the rest of your life. Boasting is a sickness. It's a terrible sickness. What is the antidote? Well, in both cases, we see the antidote is faith. It says, where then is boasting? It is excluded by what? By observing the law? No, of course, that increases boasting. That's, the, that's what boasting's all about, you see. No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. And what's that word justified mean? Okay, let's move down to the other example of this. Follow me. What then shall we say of Abraham? Was Abraham justified by works? If he was, then he would be boasting. Because that is the, the ultimate boast, to say to God, God, you owe me. Look at me. See, Everybody's cheering me because I'm such a good person, so you've got to answer my prayers. You see, that's, you know, look at all the applause I'm getting, God, so you've got to answer my prayers. But he says, that's boasting. But Abraham knew better. What did the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but who trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, the word credited, legizdomai, is an accounting word, and it, it, it's from the world of ledgers and account books. And what it's saying is that though you may not have earned that million dollars, if it's credited to you, if it's put in your account, it is now yours to spend. And what is the righteousness? The righteousness, in a sense, is the applause. It's the honor. It's the reward. It's the accolade. And that which you are trying to coerce out of people through your work, through your performance, through whatever, through your beauty, through your smarts, through your money, it's given to you. And that is the antidote. Now, how is that the antidote? What Paul's doing when he uses the word, in verse 27, when he says, so then, where is boasting? Now, what's he referring to? He's referring to a case. He was already talking about boasting in chapter 2. We kind of ignored it. We went through there because we've been going through chapter 1, 2, 3, 4. And if you remember, in chapter 2, Paul, though he himself is a Jew and has great respect for his countrymen, uses the Jews as a case study of boasting. Now, as we've seen, everybody boasts, but he was, he's using the Jews as a case. And he says the problem with the Jews is they boasted of their circumcision. Why? Well, he says Jews meant well. They, they said we're obeying the law of God. And circumcision represented the fact that they were, they were obeying the law, that they were giving themselves to obey the law. But they became proud of their circumcision. They began to boast in it. And then Paul says at the end of the case study, this is chapter 2, verse 25, he says, but the circumcision you want is the circumcision of the heart, not of the flesh, by the Spirit, not of the written code. See, you want the new birth, the new heart. 
Such a man's praise is not from men, he says in chapter 2, verse 25, 29. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. That's in chapter 2. It's not from men, but from God. And at that point, Paul is rolling out maybe the ultimate thing that we get when we believe in Jesus Christ. He says... Everybody else gets their praise from men. Cheer me because I'm this. Cheer me because I'm that. Now, just keep in mind how many different ways we, we do this. For example, for some of us, it's all through relationships. The one thing we want, the one thing that makes us sure that we are important is there is some beautiful person that loves us. And this person that we love so much looks at us, and when he or she has that incredible look of love in his or her face, and, and she's smiling on you, or he's smiling on you. It's the applause, it's the accolade, it's the, it, that, then, then I feel like I'm important. Other people, it's literally getting up in front of an audience and doing something and hearing this thunderous applause. We need that. We have a recording of Daniel Berenbaum uh, conducting and playing the piano as he conducts uh, Beethoven's Choral Fantasy, uh, conducting the Berlin Philharmonic. It's an incredible knockout, great performance. And when it gets to the very last note, because it's this incredible, great performance, one second after the last note, there's this, the audience erupts, and you know the recording keeps it just for about 10 seconds. It absolutely erupts, thunderous applause, huzzas, hallelujahs, see? Wild accolades. They're just absolutely flooding the conductor and all the musicians with glory and, their, and, and, and praise and honor. And you can kind of imagine what it must have been like at that moment for a musician to be up there and literally getting all that applause and all those accolades. What Paul is saying is he's not a stoic. He's not saying, well, look at you trying to get all that. Look at you, tr- look at you basing your identity in the accolades and the praise of human beings. He's not a stoic and said, you shouldn't need that. You know what? If you ever hear somebody say, you shouldn't need anybody else's praise, what you really person usually means, all should matter is you're applauding yourself, which is just as bad. It's, just, it's even worse. What Paul says is, you do need that. When you listen to that thunderous applause, every human being needs to walk around with that in their heart. You're as thirsty for that kind of praise and acclamation and honor as a thirsty a thirsty person dying of thirst in the desert. You need it. You want it. Everybody needs to walk around with it so they can get into battle, so they can move out of the world in confidence. We need that. But Paul says, don't build your identity on praising yourself and cheering yourself. Don't build your identity on other people praising you. Build your identity on this, that in Jesus Christ you're justified, which, which, which means what? Up to now, probably we've been thinking more along the lines of moral record or legal status or something like that. And, and that's right. That's, that's there. It's in the gospel. It's in the Bible. But today I want you to see, because I think Paul wants you to see, what that also means is the praise of God, the applause of God. It means, the th- listen, the thunderous applause of 2,000 people because you've just performed, you know, a violin concerto and have them leap to their feet and scream and, and imagine what that feels like. Nothing compared to having God's. In fact, what Paul has said is if you build your life 
on the cheers of a crowd or even the love of a lover, the beautiful, you know, the smiling face of a lover. It'll distort you. It'll puff you up if you get it. It'll, it'll create conflicts in the world. It'll, it'll make you a slave to it. And if you ever lose it, you'll kill yourself or you'll, you'll, you'll hate yourself. No, no, no. There's only one kind of praise that doesn't puff up, that you cannot lose, that heals you instead of rots your soul, and that is the praise of God. Most Christians, even pastors, struggle to talk about their faith in a way that applies the power of the gospel to change lives, especially in our skeptical culture. Tim Keller's book, Preaching, Communicating Faith in an Age of Skepticism, is a guide for anyone who wants to become more effective in communicating about their faith, pastors and laypeople alike. Drawing on his years of experience, Dr. Keller will help you share your faith in a more engaging, passionate, and compassionate way from the pulpit or in the coffee shop. Preaching is our thank you for your gift to help Gospel and Life share the hope of Christ's love with people all over the world. So request your copy today at gospelandlife.com give. That's gospelandlife.com give. Now here's Tim Keller with the remainder of today's teaching. Nobody put this better than Lewis, C.S. Lewis, in his Weight of Glory, so I'll read it slowly. When I began to look into this matter, I was shocked to find people such as John Milton and Thomas Aquinas understanding heavenly glory in the sense of fame with God. See, what he's saying is what you've always heard all your life is that when we're in heaven with God, we will be in glory. But what does that mean? Does that mean we're just going to be you know, incredibly bright like big light bulbs? What does it mean that we'll be in glory? And he suddenly realizes that Thomas Aquinas and John Milton said what it means to live in glory means fame with God. The applause, the accolades, the praise, the the delight of God. In other words, they understood that. I am not forgetting how horribly, this is Lewis, I am not forgetting how horribly the innocent desire to please and get praise from those whom it was my duty to please turns into the deadly poison of self-admiration. But I thought... I could detect a moment, a very, very short moment, as a child before this happened, during which the satisfaction of having pleased those whom I rightly loved was pure. And that was enough to raise my thoughts to what might happen, might happen when the redeemed soul in glory, beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief, learns at last that she, the soul, has pleased him whom she was pleased to please. She was created to please. There will be no room for vanity then. She will be free from the miserable illusion that it is her doing. With no taint of what we would call self-approval, she will rejoice in the thing that God has made her to be. And the moment that heals her old inferiority complex forever will also be the moment that drowns her pride deeper than Prospero's book. Now, what he's saying is crucial. The minute you begin to understand that in Christ you have God's applause, God's praise, God's thunderous affirmation, adoration, honor, and acclamation, it not only, and by grace, by grace, through what Christ has done, not on the basis of your performance. On the one hand, that destroys your inferiority complex forever. But on the other hand, it, it humbles you and drowns your pride deeper than Prospero's book. 
This is the only, you need to have that. You need to walk around with that inner applause going on all the time. That's how you handle the world. That's how you get out there, see? But on the other hand, it's got to be God's because only that will not distort you, will not rot you, will not puff you up. Only that you can never lose. Only that both humbles you and builds you up at the same time. With no taint of what we would call self-approval, she will rejoice in the thing that God has made her to be. And the moment that heals her old inferiority complex forever will also be the moment that drowns her pride deeper than Prospero's book. So, he goes on, it is written, we will stand before him. The promise of glory, then, is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that we shall please God. It shall, it seems impossible. It's a weight of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. It means good report with God, acceptance, response, acknowledgement and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. That's the antidote <laughs> for what's ailing us. Now, lastly, let me give you, on the basis of this text, two handles, practical handles on how to actually take the antidote. Because it's one thing to kind of be inspired and say, okay, I see what the sickness is, hmm, and I see what the antidote is, okay. And you can just get up and walk out and not know what to do about it. Here's two things you need to do. If you want this antidote to actually get into your system and begin to change your identity so it's not rooted in self-praise or the praise of others, but the praise of God and the knowledge of that, here's what you have to do. Number one, you have to see what it costs you to get this praise. And number two, you have to make an appropriate taunt. You, on the one hand, have to see the cost of this, the, the cost of getting you this praise. And then secondly, you have to make appropriate taunts. Yeah, okay, first, the cost. Believe it or not, Paul actually refers to it, though you have to, you have to look up the verse. When Paul talks about Abraham the moment in which Abraham finally understood what God was doing for him, finally saw that his salvation was being accomplished by God, not by himself, is where? It's actually quoted. It's in verse 3. What does the Scripture say? Quote, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But where's that quote from? Where did that moment happen? Genesis 15, verse 6. That's what that verse is. And here's the story, and Paul's trying to, wants you to remember the story. In Genesis 15, briefly, Abraham says to God, God, you know, you've been promising me all these blessings. How do I know I'm going to get them? You've been promising me the blessings. How do I know I'm going to get them? Now, you know, God should have said, Abraham, okay, look, we entered into this covenant relationship, and I promised to give you the blessing, and you promised to walk before me. I promise to do something for you. You promise to do something for me. And you're sitting there thinking, I'm, how do I know you're going to come through for me? That's probably not going to be the problem, Abraham. Abraham, you should be saying, how do I know that I'm going to be able to come through? And maybe he was thinking about this. Anyway, he's saying, how do I know I'm going to get the blessing? There's you, there's me. How do I know I'm going to get the blessing? So God says, here's what I want you to do. Take a couple animals, cut them in half, and set them out. Well, in those days, when you made a promise, when you made a contract with somebody... What you would do is you would kill an animal, 
put it on two sides and walk between the pieces and say, it was a ritual, by the way, and say, if I don't do everything I've promised to do today, may I be drawn and quartered. You're identifying with the animal, and you're taking upon yourself the curse of the covenant. And it was your way of ratifying that covenant. So when God says to Abraham, Abraham, take some animals, you know, cut them in half, and you know, create an aisle so that somebody can walk between the pieces, Abraham was sure that what that probably meant, that God was going to say, Abraham, I want you to ratify the covenant. I want you to walk between the pieces and sort of reaffirm our contract. That's not what happened. He cut the animals in pieces, and then God appeared in the form of a smoking, fiery pillar, and God went between the pieces and said, I promise to bless you. I promise to do everything I said. And Abraham was never asked to walk through it. And Abraham was, a sh- was shocked. That's the reason why probably there for the first time he understood that his righteousness, that his salvation was a free gift. It was credited to him. It was given to him that God was going to accomplish it. Because you know what God was saying? At that point he was saying, I'll take the curse. Let the curse fall on me. I will bless you if it means being torn to pieces. And he was. Because think of what actually happened to Jesus Christ. You have an amazing statement of it in Philippians 7 where it says, this is the old King James, Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. You know what's happening? It's a, when, God, when Jesus Christ was in heaven, as part of the Trinity, the triune Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he had all the praise. Think about that. He had the praise. He had the adoration. He had the thing that every heart wants. All the time, acclamation, praise, roaring approval, love. You see, infinite. And he came down where he got. He came into this world where he got mocked, jeered, struck, made fun of. He got the booze. B-O-O-S. He got the mockery. See? I mean, there's nothing worse than to think that you get up there and you, you do your performance, and instead of applause, people throw rocks or tomatoes and boo you and hiss at you and say, get out of here. Do you know what happened? Jesus Christ lost the acclamation of heaven and took the approbation and took the rejection that we deserve so we can have what? What he deserved, which is what? Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire. Well done, good and faithful servant. The divine jeer, mock, rejection, the divine accolade, applause. Well done, good and faithful servant. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, wow, for you, for me, for God, there's the ultimate accomplishment. And yet, Jesus got, he heard in his soul, he was forsaken by God, he heard in his soul the words, depart from me, so that we could hear in our soul, well done, good and faithful servant. You are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus Christ lost. He made himself of no reputation. He lost everything so that you could have a name with God. 
He was jeered so that you could have the infinite honor of God. And that's what he did. That's what it cost him. And when you see that, then you'll finally be so in your heart. See, only when I see that, only when you see that, can you be absolutely convinced in your heart of God's delight in you, God's praise of you, God's delight in you, and then you don't have to worry about what anybody else thinks or says. And that leads us to the second thing. I told you that boasts always lead to taunts, right? If you boast against an army, it's a taunt. Well, guess what? In the Bible, we're told that if you do it rightly, you should taunt. Once you understand your justification, once you understand who you are in Jesus Christ, you should taunt. Where? Where does it say that? Here is a restatement of the end of Romans 3 and 4, except it's in Galatians 6.14, where Paul says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. May I never boast except in what? The cross, what it cost Jesus to, to give me his praise. See, I am boasting. I am grounding my confidence. I do know that I'm of value, see? But it's only in the cross of Jesus Christ and what he did for me. And what's the result? The world is now crucified to me, and I to the world. What does that mean? The world has been weakened. The world has been demoted. The world has been demythologized. See, when you ground your identity in something here, if you say, I'm a great artist, or I've made a lot of money, or I've got people who love me, do you know what you're doing? You're empowering the world. And, and if, if the person who loves you says, well, I think I'll break up with you, or the, pers- or the career goes, this goes south and your money goes south, or the world, see, the world can say, if you don't have me, you're nothing. So the world is filled with, with power and it's, a, and it's got all this. But you know what? When you boast in the cross, you can look at the world and taunt it and say, you cannot control me. You are not my life. Now that woman I sometimes tell you about that years ago when I was a young pastor, she taught me about the gospel. She told me this awful story about how she'd all her life been in abusive relationships with men. She constantly got into relationships with men, and she knew no boundaries in that relationship. She let them beat them, her in some cases, exploit her. Why? Because she, over the years, she had felt in her heart of hearts, as long as I have a man loving me, then I'm worth something. But when she understood the gospel, she said, I started looking at men, and I started to say, under my breath, of course, I said, you know what? Maybe you're the guy for me. Maybe I'll marry you. That's fine. But I want you to know something. You are not my life. Christ is my life. You're not my identity. I don't need your love to know that I'm somebody. What's she doing? She's taunting. She's taunting men with the gospel in her heart, under her breath, by the way. But she's taunting. Why? She's boasting in the cross. And it gave her a freedom. It gave her a freedom. She could make decent choices with guys now. Remember two weeks ago I mentioned the guy who said uh, he, had, he had a lot of money. He was an asset manager, remember? And three years ago he say, found Christ and he suddenly realized that this was his worth, this was his value. started in his heart of hearts began boasting in, in Christ, in the cross. And it says this year he lost an enormous amount of money, major part of his net worth. He said, if I hadn't found Christ three years ago, I would be probably suicidal now. Why? Because he can look at his bank book. He can look at the financial industry. He can look, he can look at he can look at money and say, You're not my life. That is 
an appropriate taunt. Because every boast is a taunt. Do you know how to do it? Do you know how to do the things that right now are cowing you? You need to look at those things in the world and say, you're a good thing, but you're not an ultimate thing, and therefore you're not alive to me. I demythologize you. I demote you. I don't need you. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let us pray. Our Father, we, we thank you for this uh, remarkable um, insight into what the nature of saving faith is. In fact, what the nature of our salvation is. Uh, it's not just a legal standing. It's the praise, your praise, your accolade, your acclamation, your thunderous applause. Um, and we see that faith is not just some kind of general belief. It's, it's boasting in the cross. It's regrounding our identity so that the world no longer can push us around. And we can look at the world and we can say, you're a good thing, but you're not an ultimate thing. You cannot control me. You can't make me a slave. I pray, Father, that the freedom of the gospel would be something all of us would experience and that we wouldn't let our heart's tendency to boast in things, even in, in anything, uh, fool us, deceive us, and keep us spiritually sick. Heal us with your word. Heal us with the gospel, with the antidote that we're justified by faith through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's teaching. We pray that it challenged you and encouraged you. You can find more resources from Tim Keller at gospelandlife.com. Just subscribe to the Gospel and Life newsletter to receive free articles, sermons, devotionals, and other resources. Again, it's all at gospelandlife.com. You can also stay connected with us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. This month's sermons were recorded in 2009 and 2016. The sermons and talks you hear on the Gospel and Life podcast were preached from 1989 to 2017, while Dr. Keller was senior pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church.